Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will finish up our look at Old Folks Town by Harry Peter Stowe, and thereby also finish up our look at Harry Peter Stowe's uh, works. Overall, we've looked at three of her novels over something like 13 episodes. We looked at Uncle Tom's Cabin, then The Minister's Wooing, and now finally Old Town Folks. Um, and I have been pleasantly surprised at what I have found in these, these novels overall. Uh, they may not be everyone's cup of tea, but I think uh, as a window into the mid-19th century mind, especially that of a reform, reformer, abolitionist, uh, kind of a progressive voice at the time, I think these, these novels work well in that, that respect. Um, they're not really my cup of tea either in terms of like style and literary style and, and, and plot and story, but I do think they're worth reading for their, uh, the way they kind of pry into, into how a certain class of people were thinking at that time of American history. Um, a lot of reflection, I think, especially in this book, on what America is. I, I think the first two books we looked at does, don't focus as much or don't think as much about, about what America is. But this book, by kind of getting into the politics of the time, especially this tension between the pro-French and pro-British factions in America in the aftermath of the American Revolution, I think it really is asking a question of like, what really is America? Uh, going to be? What's our future? Is it going to be democratic or is it going to be based on old institutions from the old world? Is it going to be something new? Is it going to be a new world or not? And, and I think even though it sounds kind of old-fashioned by 1960, 1869 to worry about these things, that was very much an early Republican anxiety. But in the aftermath of the Civil War, maybe, you know, just like now there's nostalgia for, for like the 80s or something. Uh, you know, maybe a bit of nostalgia is, is playing a role here. I, I do think that's the case. Both the minister's wooing and Old Town Folks is set essentially in the post-revolutionary period. Um, maybe it's coming to terms with the Civil War and the, and the crisis and, and the violence and, and the, the, the deaths of that period. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe there's something to it. It's, it's, um, it's a big book. Old Town Folks is a big book. It's rich in just in theme, I think, and it, it makes it kind of hard to talk about. Plot-wise, there's not actually that much that happens. Essentially, we have a couple orphans get adopted by another family. They get ra they raise together, uh, and then the Tina grows up to be beautiful uh, and marries a, a bit of a con artist type of character uh, who, you know, has a bastard kid. He's exposed, and then Tina, this young woman, chooses faithfulness to her husband despite the betrayal. Uh, she chooses goodness despite her husband choosing evil, and she chooses to stand by her man, which lasts until he dies in a, in a, in a duel over political conflicts. Again, like the Aaron Burr. He, he is Aaron Burr, isn't he? Ellery Davenport is just... Uh, a fictionalized Aaron Burr, but he takes the bullet in this version, not uh, Alexander Hamilton. Um, but and then this allows her to marry, you know, the, the man she she truly loved. I spent a lot of time last episode talking about, or at least thinking about, like 
uh, Tina's emerging sexuality and how honest I think Stowe is, and I think how progressive and, and you know modern she is in this criticism of of how men think about women's emerging sexuality and how men you know misinterpret signals and and tend to do that and and how that's unfair to to women who are just expressing their their desire to be part of a community or to be kind to someone and this gets twisted by male sexuality to be about sex it basically comes down to men seeing women essentially as sex objects and that is more than that and still goes through a lot of pains to make to remind us that Tina is much more than that. She is a brilliant woman. If she was a boy, she would have been able to go to Harvard like her, the like Harry and Horace, and probably have been a very successful person. But she was limited in that pursuit. So when school lets out, when she can no longer be at Cloudland studying, she has to, you know, her education caps off. This is discussed explicitly in this section. So she has to go back to Old Town. And then basically the only choice in her life at that point is who to marry. And yeah, she does marry the wrong person. But she makes the right choices after that fact. And I think that's a, it's, it's kind of what you make of your decisions is something I think Tina's character allows us to explore. Um, other characters here don't seem to have that same dilemma at any point. Horace seems always kind of destined for to become a preacher. Uh, Harry gets his future kind of handed to him uh, by, by fate, essentially. Um, but Tina, she's actually given this choice. Do I leave this man? Do I stay with him? And she does the, she does the right thing at the end, I, I think, at least for, for her. I mean, maybe staying with him wasn't the best idea, but she does the right thing for her husband's bastard child. Um, I think that's fair to say. Anyways, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, and if you haven't read this book, this book, you don't quite know where it all goes. Um, but anyways, the first chapter we want to look at, we're going to look at chapters 37 to 50 to the end of the book today. And like before, I probably won't go chapter by chapter. I might skip over a few that don't do much to carry the plot. But, um, you know, things are going to happen fast at this point. We're basically to the climax of the book, and, and Stowe really pops it off really quickly. I think more happens in those last 100 pages than the whole rest of the book in many ways because the earlier parts are so introspective and philosophical at times. Bogs it down the book a little bit, I, I have to admit. Um, but anyways, the first chapter here, 37, is called The Minister's Wood Spell, which is it's really fun. This is essentially just like a, a wood tax that's imposed on the people in the congregation. And this is the Cloudland congregation. So these are the students. Mr. Avery is the preacher. And he basically gets uh, his wood prepared for him by the community, which is kind of an interesting little uh, bit of Americana, I suppose. I, I don't know if this was common. I'm assuming it kind of is. Because uh, Stowe does want to document a, a moment in history and time in, in New England. But I just think it's interesting that like the whole community has to provide like a little bit of wood for the minister so he doesn't have to prepare his own wood. That's a big job, of course, if you know, before fossil fuel heating in people's homes, if you wanted to, you know, you had to prepare, you had to be chopping wood like months in advance to have enough to get you through the winter, right? And, and you wanted to do it when it wasn't that cold out. So that was a lot of what you did in the fall after harvesting was, was preparing lumber, you know, for 
heating the home and for cooking your meals throughout the winter. Uh, and that the pastor got this sort of done for him by the community is, is kind of interesting. It's kind of like a little mini corvée that's imposed on the community, but it doesn't amount to much. It's like a barn raising, right? It's, I don't want to say it's an oppressive tax. It's just a nice little bit of Americana. And then you get the sleighs, the, the one-horse sleighs coming by, it, it, kind of a Christmassy feel to it. it it's, it's kind of nice. Um, then chapter 38 is just called Ellery Davenport. We've known about Ellery Davenport for half the book by this point, but we get a whole chapter devoted to him. And really, this is Horace coming to terms with who Ellery Davenport is. And he has deep, deep jealousy. Um, Horace, by this point, is clearly being friend-zoned by, by Tina and, his, and the main target of Tina's interests is Ellery Davenport, right? So a lot of, of rather uncritical. I think that's one era where I think this book could have went in a different direction. I, I mean, of course, Horace is not going to end up being the bad guy in the book, but part of me sort of wants, wants him to because he is being kind of a little shit here and how he's like tr angry almost at times about Tina's affections for, for Mrs. Davenport and he always trying to remind her you know he's you know he's married and uh, he's often thinking about that and that's um, it's it's not entirely well I guess it, I want to say it's not fair but Davenport is presented as kind of a nasty character here by Stowe but she, it didn't have to be that's my point it would have been a more interesting novel if if Davenport was actually a decent guy that was just being perceived as, as evil, you know, as the Chad by our, our, our character. Maybe I've got too much to mo of a modern lens that I'm looking at this as. I want to I wanna kind of see it as an incel narrative, and maybe that's not right, but, um, but there it is. We also get here more discussion. Once again, this is probably the third or fourth discussion by this point in the book that basically rep repeats the, the, the same thing, and that's um, New England or England uh, or New England views on French radicalism, I guess. Because, of course, New England was the center of, of federalism. So you're going to understandably have more anti-French sentiment here. Now, I think if we look broadly at the um, like American history, there's a shift. This is my reading of the text and the secondary materials on this is that Early on, yes, it was the New England that was more, had more of an affection for, for England, and French loyalties were more in the West and maybe the South and the Jeffersonians. But once uh, the American Revolution was kind of completed and you had the expansion of slavery and the rise of this planter class as a much more established social class in America, you get more anti-French revolutionary thought and more conservative monarchical thinking in the South. Um, so that you get with very undemocratic aspects to America, to the democracy in America through the ideology of the planter class. So that, that's a long-term change. But uh, at this point still, New England is, on balance, more skeptical of French radicalism. And it's tied up here. I think Stowe does a good job of at least teaching me how much that's tied up into attitudes about the church, how Congregationalists... Uh, were seen as kind of 
anti-monarchical, anti-hierarchical, anti-tradition, which fits in with the American revolutionary narrative, but it also sometimes got them pinned a little too close to, to French radicalism. Listen to this. Uh, this is uh, Mr. Rositer, I think, or is, it, or is it Mr. Avery? No, it's Mr. Rositer says this, um, who is the head of the, 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 the whole school, talking to Mr. Avery, the, the minister. And he says, recognize, my dear sir, nobody knows the worth of religion as a political force better than I do. Those French people are just like children, full of sentiment, full of feeling, full of fire, but without the cold, judging, logical power that is frozen into men here by your New England theology. If I have got to manage a republic, give me Calvinists. And then Avery says, oh, you see the worth of a Calvinist. And, and uh, then Ellery Davenport steps in. As a political agent, certainly I do. Men must have strong, positive religious beliefs and give them vigorous self-government, and republics are founded on the self-governing power of the individual. Um, anyways, the way this is all kind of panning out in this, this back and forth between these three characters is the French Revolution being associated with atheism, right, and... Calvinism being kind of associated with maybe traditional monarchism, but then doesn't this create a space for the new lights to be like the actual moderate Republican force? Is that what she's trying to say here? Um, I, I, I think that's kind of where she's heading. She's, that's why she keeps bringing up the French versus the British. She wants to find this American kind of uh, like a, I want to say moderate between the two, but maybe it's more of a, a Republican versus, you know, not a Democratic or a monarchical, but a Republican uh, alternative to those two things. Um, certainly we do get a lot of American nationalism here too, where uh, like for, especially with the character of Harry. Harry is the one who's going to ha also have to come to terms with this. Um, Davenport is a diplomat, so and he's kind of globetrotting, so he can kind of play different ends, and he's a little sussy anyways. Harry, though, who's not sus, we trust his perspective and his point of view, is ultimately going to be forced to choose England or America because he's, he's it turns out he's descended from uh, European aristocracy, and he's going to inherit that land and position and title. But he says here, America has nursed me and educated me, and I shall always, by heart and soul, be an American. My life must be acted in this country. Now, I never get the full story of what happens to Harry after the fact, because she wraps up the novel so quickly. Does he fulfill this um, after inheriting his wealth? Uh, we'll see about that later. Ultimately, though, this chapter does seem to conclude um, that Davenport is a bit of a hypocrite and, and not really trustworthy in his political perspectives. Um, and that essentially conforms with how Horace sees him, but Horace doesn't trust him because he's a romantic rival to him. So I don't know. He, ta he takes it on the chin. Elry El uh, Davenport sort of takes it on the chin in this chapter, but it, he, it's done in such an interesting way uh, through these conversations about just where America is in this global conflict between revolutionary France and monarchical conservative Britain. Um, good stuff, really. 
Um, then we quickly get to the last days in Cloudland, which is chapter 2039. Uh, there's a nice closing play here. Um, we're told directly that Tina is having experiencing daddy issues with her uh, affection. And there's, there, I didn't mention this before, but there's kind of a, a romance that doesn't really go anywhere, a potential romance between Rositer and Tina. So we have the headmaster of the school being kind of primed to be one of Tina's romantic interests. And it's kind of creepy, but so is Ellery's relationship with Tina is kind of creepy. But uh, we're, it's kind of textually, we're textually told here that essentially she's having sort of daddy issues because she's, you know, abandoned and didn't, didn't really have a man in her life, a father figure in her life. So before the concept of daddy issues were there, Harry Beecher Stowe here kind of lays it out as a motivation for um, our character. And maybe that's a foreshadowing, a danger that Tina's going to have with uh, when she's seduced by Davenport, because maybe he is also a surrogate father for her. Um, now the chapter ends with some final advice given by Rositer, sorry, Avery, Avery, the, the minister, to, to the boys for their success down the future. And where do they go? Well, they go to Harvard, of course. So we waste no time in chapter 40 seeing the boys enter Harvard. It's going to be Harry and Horace. They live together. Um, and we're told right away, too, that this is totally sexist that Tina doesn't go with them. Quote, Tina's education was now, in the common understanding of society, looked upon as finished. Harry and mine were commencing. We were sophomores in college. She was a young lady in society, yet she was younger than either of us and had, I must say, quite as good a mind and was fully as capable of going through the college course with one of us as of having walked thus far. However, with her, the next question was, whom shall she marry? Unquote. What a great way of summarizing all the lost potential uh, that, you know, misogynist gender norms created or like or uncreated. All that potential that was not there because the only question for Tina is who she's going to marry, you know, as if that's the only thing that matters. And that's like essentially the end of her life at that point. Uh, obviously, Stowe doesn't agree with that. She herself is married and one of the most famous writers in America at the time. Um, but, you know, she's being realistic here. For the vast majority of women, this is the only question that really is going to determine the rest of their life, right? And, and it is an important question to think about. I think people shouldn't marry willy-nilly. But the idea that that's the last thing of significance that she's going to have to decide on is kind of heartbreaking. Um, yeah, it's strange. A chapter called We Enter College is devoted largely to Tina. Um, um, they, Harry and, and Horace do talk about Tina's love for, for Davenport that's emerging. And we see that... Uh, now, Horace says something that's fascinating for me. Not, I don't know if he's being honest here about the reality or if he's just seeing Davenport as, as a, like a Chad, essentially like a Chad. I'm sorry to keep going into like Zoomer, like incel politics here in this because I, I keep seeing them now. Um, maybe I'm too much. I'm, I myself am too online maybe. We have here, well, Harry, didn't you ever hear of married men that like to try experiments with girls? And in our American society, they can do it all the more safely because here, thank heaven, nobody ever dreams but what marriage is a perfect regulator and safeguard. Um, 
So basically the idea is men are just going to be dogs, sleep with as many women as they can. And if, if, if marriage, traditional marriage doesn't somehow restrict them. Um, but I think he's just trying to say that this Davenport, he's, he's a bit of a Chad and he should stay away from, from Tina. So that jealousy there, it is kind of tainting Horace's character a little bit, I think. Um, he, he has very, very clear love for, for Tina. It's expressed again and again in this part of the story. And as he's maturing, he's having to come to terms with the fact that he's going to lose out because he's at Harvard and, and Tina's not there with him. Um, now, in the next chapter, chapter 41, um, we, we get the news from a letter for Harry. It's essentially a letter from his father uh, delivered by Ellery. Again, he's not a totally bad guy. He did his job. He, he was asked to look up some things back in, in England, and he found stuff. And in that, he finds this letter. And this letter um, is basically willing. It's a guy named Harry Percival. It's, it's Harry's father willing, in, willing his entire estate to, to Harry and his title and everything, and also apologizing for the way he treated his mother. Uh, and which is, again, I think... How do we look at this Harry character? We know nothing about him, but he's apparently very honest here. He says, I did not do right by your mother, nor by you and your sister, as I am now free to acknowledge. She was not of a family equal to ours, but she was too good for me. I left her in America like a brute as I was, and God had judged me for this. Now, if you get to the end of the story and you remember this, this is the exact geographical inverse of what Ellery does. Ellery... uh, meets a woman who's good for him, apparently. Um, he has a kid with her and then abandons her because he's married, right? It's the same situation here as he had to marry someone of his social status. So he abandons the good woman for someone that he's socially obligated to marry. Obviously, Stowe is not content with people marrying based on social uh, status, Um she thinks people should marry for love, I think. Um, and it seems that was denied Harry. So he's somewhat a sympathetic character, even though he is horrible what he did to his, his children and to his, the woman he apparently really loved. But someone in his position probably didn't have as much freedom to do that. But he says, like, uh, like he said, I married the woman that fa- my father picked for him. And I was re- resolved to pull up and live soberly like a decent man. Um, but my children all died. He was left abandoned. He paid for his sins, apparently. And now the only heir is Harry. And so Harry's going to inherit the entire estate. So Harry's going to become an English aristocrat just a few chapters after stating his commitment to America and American ideals and American education and, and all that. Um, so now the story is going to uh, come quickly to an end. Uh, so I'm going to kind of zip through it pretty quickly. Uh, they return to Old Town on spring vacation, um, and they get all sorts of, of news. Um, they visit home. They get, and I love how Sam, a character who kind of disappeared from the story, comes back, and we get this long summation of the news of town in Sam's kind of working class dialect uh, that Stowe's really practicing on writing here. Uh, so we get all the details of town. We're, we're reminded that Old Town is the center of this book and it's it's a it's alive 
with all this richness and all these people and all the different perspectives and this uh, the cycles of nature, the agriculture, the the, the street life, the, the personalities, they're all still there. And even though we moved kind of to this narrative focus on these three characters, we, we, we're not, we, we still have Old Town in our heart. And, I, and, and the reader does too. The reader wants this, I think. And it's great that Stowe returns us to, to there. The biggest news, however, is that Tina is engaged to Davenport. Um, now, the next chapter is called What Our Folks Think About This. And what they think about it is, um, yeah, Davenport is, is uh, people like him. And people basically think Davenport and Tina, that's a good, good match. We've learned that uh, Davenport has lost his wife. Um, she was insane already, and she died. We don't have that full backstory, unfortunately. We just sort of get bits and pieces of it. But... She's died, and now he's chosen to remarry and chose Tina. And everyone sort of thinks that's a good thing. Um, Horace, though, we're told, can never love another. He's like, if I can't have Tina, I can't have anyone. So he does come off a little bit whiny here. Again, I don't think Stowe Stowe wants us to think of him as the negative, uh, in a negative way, but I kind of do. I, I think there's things about about Horace that do come off a little cringy to me at times, especially the way he, he really can't get over the fact that the girl he, he likes is getting married. It's, um, then we have the marriage preparation and the marriage itself, which is on June 14th. So just a few months from when the engagement was announced, they are getting married. Um, Horace and Tina have one conversation in this section where they really discuss uh, his feelings about her marriage. Uh, This is on the wedding day um, where he says like, he actually says upright, the way he goes at this is like, are you happy with his religion? Is he religious enough for you? Is he of, it's like that same question that was in the, the minister's wooing. Like, are you, are you simpatico in terms of religion? And she seems to have almost a prepared response here. She says, I'm glad you asked me that, Horace, because Mr. Davenport is a man that is very apt to be misunderstood. Nobody really does understand him but me. He has seen so much of cant and hypocrisy, the pretense of religion, and is so afraid of pretensions that do not mean anything that I think he goes to the other extreme. Indeed, I have told him so. But he says he is always delayed to hear me talk on religion, and he likes to have me repeat hymns to him. And he told me the other day that he thought the Bible contained finer strains of poetry and eloquence than could be gotten from all other books put together. Then he has such a wonderful mind, you know. Mr. Avery said that he never saw a person more that appreciated all the distinctions of the doctrines more completely than he did. End quote. So, I mean, why isn't this, why do we doubt this? Horace barely knows this guy, Ellery Davenport. Tina's engaged to him, about to marry him. And she says he's got much more complicated views on religion than you just think. You think he's just an atheist, seduced by kind of like French revolutionary rhetoric and things like that. But no, he's actually got a rather sophisticated view. He's not a Tom Paine, uh, arguing like his age of reason. I, I, I like this moment where, where Tina's essentially like, you're wrong about him. And, you know, I love this guy. I know him. You don't you know, step off a little bit. Um, if this was retold in a modern story, this would be the story, right? I think you know that. 
least that's it's clear to me. Um, so, but chapter 47 is called Behind the Curtain. And so now we get the revelation that, that Ellery has been up to things. Um, I don't know if this denies, like, Tina's insights, because Tina does stay with Ellery. So I, I want to believe, you know, T, we've been told throughout the book how insightful, how brilliant Tina is. Would she make this mistake? Maybe she, she wasn't. Maybe we should trust her decision on this, even though this is news to her, what, she's, what she finds out at the Dench Mansion, which is really cool they go back there. Before they go off to Europe to his next post, they're going to stay at the Dench Mansion, which, of course, has a lot of personal connections to um, the Percival kids because that's where they went when they ran away from uh, those from the Smiths. Um, but they meet the housekeeper, and the housekeeper is Emily Rositer, who is actually, I think it was the, wasn't that the woman that they wanted her him to find, and he did find her and, and got her pregnant. I mean, it was like, I think he was sent to, to locate her for the, for the family, um, for a, Medible, right? Medible Rositer, the one who was taking care of Tina. She asked uh, Davenport to find her, and he did, and and proceeded to impregnate her, and then abandoned her. So that's when he was still married. So he sort of had that same excuse that uh, Harry's father had, that like, oh, you know, I was destined to marry someone else, so I kind of had to abandon this woman. I feel bad about it now. El Ray, El, El Ray has to come to terms with what he's done in the past because she's shown up with the baby. Then in chapter 48, we get Tina's solution, which is to adopt the baby and make her part of this new family she's creating. It's actually a pretty mature response to this. She doesn't immediately divorce. She doesn't flip out about it. Of course, this is stuff that happened before she married Ellery and you know, and as she told us before, she knows him better than we do as the readers, and she we know better than 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 Horace knows. So, I sort of dig her response here. Um, you know, sometimes I, I sometimes think we 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 flip out a little bit too much about monogamy, and and you know, it's it's hard. We're not really hardwired for it. And people make mistakes, and those mistakes have huge consequences, like babies in this case. But is that reason enough to destroy relationships? Like we're on the Maury Povich show or something. It's our you know daytime talk shows. I don't think so. I think I think Tina's response here is quite. Um, it's of course a little bit self-sacrificing, but she gets a kid out of it. She gets someone she can raise and she can help. Um, pay back the family that raised her this way because it is, you know, Rosaters. And in fact, I think the, the Rosater sisters then move into the Dench Mansion after that. Um, it all kind of works out for everyone. Um, and then we get to the end of the novel, and the end of the novel is just a few details of, of what happens after this. Um, and essentially what happens is... Uh, they remain in contact with Tina. Tina and Horace remain in contact with each other. And we find that Tina's choice 
has some negative consequences for her. Like she is under a lot of pressure and uh, tension. We see it in her letters. Um, her affection for her husband, which is described here as blind, triumphant adoration for an idealized hero, comes down to earth, which it should, right? That's never a good reason to marry in the first place is an idealization of someone based on falsehoods. Um, but she uh, bears it. Now, eventually, Davenport is killed in a duel. Um, again, he is kind of an Aaron Burr kind of character here. And two years later, she marries Horace. And happily ever after, I suppose, at that point. I just want to say, like, I, I do think Davenport's character is meant to be presented as essentially a, a rake and a criminal here. But I think what is important about this, this book is Tina's rather unconventional responses to, to that. Um, she's not what we as modern readers would expect out of this narrative. And, and I think she's not what writers at the time or readers at the time expected from this type of character. So I really appreciate what she's trying to do. I, I think she's trying to do something rather radical in the gender politics of it all. It has a very conventional ending. Of course, she marries the right guy at the end. But the lead up to it and her, the choices she make, I, I think it's quite well done. Um, so I really like what's done with Tina in the book. I think she's really the highlight of this book, Old Town Folks. That and Old Town itself. Um, I kind of wish I almost had more of Old Town and its characters. I think the beginning part of it is so great. And then when you kind of, don't go back to Old Town for a while. You kind of do miss it. But uh, still, overall, I think this is a group book. I, I think this is uh, unfairly kind of neglected in, in the American canon. Of course, it's in the Library of America, so it's sort of in the canon, but it's, it's marginal to it, right? People read Uncle Tom's Cabin. They don't read Stowe's other novels that much. Um, I don't know if I'm overstating that, but I've never heard of this book before. So, um, so there. Um, I guess that's all. I guess that's all I'm going to say about Harry Peter Stowe for now. Um, next up will be um, Black Reconstruction in America by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, I have ordered, I don't know if it's going to come in yet, the Library of America's sort of sequel to the Civil War series, which is one volume on re documents of reconstruction. I've looked at the table of contents. It looks good. I'm a little hesitant to do the short readings again because it, the format of 100 pages, it, it sometimes doesn't work out well. But I think pairing it with Black Reconstruction in America might be a worthy exercise, worthy of our time. So let's plan for about six episodes where we're going to read Black Reconstruction in America. It's about a 600-page book. I unfortunately don't have the Library of America edition of that book, and I don't plan to ever buy it because I have my own edition of it, uh, unless I run into some extra money I need to spend. And that's the only volume of the Library of America I don't have. I might buy it then, but it's, it's, it's not my intention to buy that. But instead, I'm just going to revert to a different edition. It's, no, it's going to be the same text, right? Just the paginations may be a little bit different. Um, but I think I, I plan six, maybe seven episodes where we'll read through the Black Reconstruction in America uh, text. And then if I have that other book, in three, four weeks, I want to go through that collection. 
um, and see how it supports or expands on uh, Du Bois's argument. So for next week, or for next episode, I should say, uh, we're going to read chapters one through four of Black Reconstruction in America. The chapter is called The Black Worker, The White Worker, The Planter, and The General Strike. Um, this is a great book. Uh, everyone, every American should read this book. And uh, I'll be excited to share my thoughts about it with you. Um, I'm still, I'm kind of actually looking for maybe a partner who can read this with me, but I haven't had much luck finding someone who has the time and energy at this point in the year to do this. But if, um, if I can find one, it might be uh, an interview back and forth kind of episode. That's what I'm hoping to have, but don't hold your breath. It might just be me as usual. But anywho, that's, I'm super excited. It's, uh, I loved writing, doing, working on Du Bois earlier in this series, and it's so nice to be back to, to look at what his, his, his greatest book. Um, we maybe did a little bit of his. We did maybe like the propaganda of history at one point, but we're going to look at this fresh. Um, it's a beautiful text, really it is. Um, so let's do it. Um, next up, Black Reconstruction in America. Thanks for listening. Um, I'll see you next time with our return to Du Bois.